Welcome. This is Messages of Necessity, an Empire Center for Public Policy podcast, and I'm Tim Hofer. I'm joined today by Eric Ohms, who's a partner in A. Ohms and Sons Dairy, and also the vice president of the board of directors of the New York State Farm Bureau. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start. Uh, let's start right at the beginning. When we talk about farming, in New York. Often we miss the key detail, which is how farms ended up in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about the story about how the Ohmses ended up here? Sure. Uh, my um, a post World War II, my father and his brother and my grandparents were looking for opportunity. They felt the wall closing in on them in Europe. They're actually their farm was about two miles from the uh, center of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. So. There wasn't going to be a lot of opportunity for growth there. So in uh, 1950, they, they all came to America together. And uh, 19, they worked shares. They had a sponsor, and they worked shares on a farm. But about two years later, in 1952, they scraped together enough to get free mortgages to buy a farm uh, here in uh, Chatham, New York. So um, my parents both Dutch, but they met here in America. And... Um, so again, came here because this is the land of opportunity. Well, that's a that's a great segue um, because farming was a huge industry in New York, and that's changed certainly over your lifetime, and um, probably even more significantly over the past decade. There's been some really significant changes to the way that Albany has approached farming. One of those things is the new set of rules that were passed around unionization of farm workers. Can you talk a little bit about that, the impact it's had on you, and then also on the industry at large? Sure. So in, in 2019, uh, the legislature passed the Farm Worker Fair Labor Practices Act, which um, essentially there's two things that it did. Number one, it allowed for collective bargaining and unionization of farm workers, and number two, it put us on a path uh, through a wage board of, of overtime um, for 40 hours. And the overtime after 40 hours, we're starting that step down next year. I said they put us on a path because they created a wage board, which is a bunch of kabuki theater to um, make it seem like there was a process. But the reality is the cake was baked in 2019. Uh, the other side of that was the um, collective bargaining, which I think we probably got a little bit of a reprieve from COVID because they were able to start pulling things together. And I think this passed in 2019, so that date to me are um, not clear. But over the past, oh, we're probably up to a year now. Over the past 8 to 12 months, there has been a full court press by different union groups. I think the umbrella is United Farm Workers, uh, which is the national umbrella, but there's some different local unions that are helping with this. And I'm not familiar enough with that yet. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to get to know it a lot better. Um, where they're pressing uh, farm workers into uh, unions. And for instance, we have our first union on Long Island 
And actually the farm workers are at a meeting with some, um, some of the leaders at the Department of Labor saying, okay, we signed up for this, but it's not what we thought it was. How do we get out of it? Unfortunately, that's not easy if it's possible. So it's going to change. This is obviously what's already happening, and it's only going to exacerbate is, so if you're a, a vegetable grower, you know, you can grow the vegetables that ever, like, I'll just pick carrots, for instance. You know, you can grow carrots or cabbage, which are high labor items, or you could do like I do. You grow field corn, which you plant the seed with a tractor and planter, um, and then you harvest it in the fall, and there's not a lot of physical labor. And my family's kind of done that for the last 30 years, always trying to find ways to minimize labor. And you're going to have this more and more in the fruit and vegetable industry because they're so labor intensive when our cost of labor is so much higher in New York compared to our competitors, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, depending on what you're growing. Um, you know, the, the legislature is telling you not using a lot of labor because we're going to artificially raise the price. Well, that's so that's a really important point because it creates almost a comparative disadvantage for farmers in New York. I mean, that sounds obvious, but it's it is the biggest problem, right? And and if you have that disadvantage, it also goes to as as we already talked about, the ability to compete and to continue to have this industry be viable in the state. So how do you reconcile those two? <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I'm a I'm always been very optimistic, and I continue to be optimistic. But part of my optimism is where I live. There's there is opportunity because you have second homeowners that have disposable income, so we can serve those niche markets. But again, that doesn't feed the masses, and so you know some people are going to do it because I'm going to do it. But at some point, you have to. Financially, it has to work or it just isn't going to keep happening. You, know, you can't keep losing money and keep doing it. So entrepreneurs are going to go and do what they need to do to survive. Uh, and the other thing, I don't know if I mentioned earlier in this conversation or not, but the other thing that, that's hugely important is the, uh, the climate goals of the state. And I, there's a lot of climate goals that don't make much sense. But honestly, I think the mortal threat is uh, solar. Um, frankly, actually, I mean, we just got an offer yesterday, but we get these all the time. We get these mass mailings and they'll pay you up to $2,000 an acre a year. I mean, definitely over $1,000 an acre a year to rent your land to have solar panels. on. And yeah, I'm, we all want renewable energy. But at some point, you know, I don't have to do anything and you're going to pay me $1,000 plus an acre to, to have solar panels on there. That's, uh, that's a pretty, you know, it doesn't make sense to grow corn. It doesn't make sense to grow field corn. And then on top of that, if you're growing sweet corn for, for human consumption, which is more labor, um, I don't have to do anything and I'm getting $1,000 an acre. So it's, uh, and, then you have the other factor of 
you know, back in the day, you know, when my father emigrated here in 1950, a lot of land was owned by individuals, smaller farms. You had your land and you might rent or lease a little bit. But more and more, more than half of the farmland in New York State now is leased land. Well, if someone's leasing the land and they're looking at the financial aspect, um, it's, it's really tough to say that corn or soybeans makes a whole lot of sense when now, I mean, we can make a lifestyle choice of, I just don't like the look of solar panels. That's fine. But, you know, if your choice is, you know, if you own this land that for whatever reason, you have a hundred acres and you can get a thousand dollars an acre from the solar people and, you know, two, three hundred dollars at best from a field crop grower. Yeah, you know, I could learn to like solar panels. Right, right. Well, and that, I mean, that is sort of the same line as what we were just talking about in this, you know, you've created this, you know, disadvantage for the farming community. And meanwhile, with the growth of the opportunity to use solar panels and change the business, of course, everything you add that's a challenge for the farmers is going to push them closer to wanting to do something different, to signing that lease to lease their land for solar panels, whether they want to or not. Um, so one goal of the state is getting in the way of another goal of the state in that regard. Um, so what do you, I mean, what do you, if uh, there's a lot of ways we could ask this question and, and maybe it's just about if you could wave a magic wand, what are the two things that you'd be looking for Albany to do to bring that back, that competitive advantage for the farming community? Um, well, I mean, and this is this is where it becomes a real a real challenge because the things that need to be done may not be politically possible. I'll state for one instance. I'll give Governor Hochul credit for this. Um, farm worker labor bill was passed before she was governor. Not to say she would have signed it or not. I'm not getting into that. But when the overtime provisions are coming in, the state she put in her budget of overtime tax credit. Um, so basically for every dollar that we spend on overtime between 40 and 60 hours, the state's gonna give us a dollar 17 back. So we're not disadvantaged. So, you know, that would be what she would say is an effort to fix the problem. And, you know, you could say, now as a taxpayer, I'm thinking, well, this is kind of crazy, but that's her effort to do that. The problem is, and, and okay, so that helps with that particular problem. But now we stack all these other issues on top of that of New York not being a business friendly state. I mean, you can just look at what happens with the um, unemployment. I'm not. I'm not probably going to get the terminology wrong, but the unemployment um, debt that we owe to the federal government is something like seven or eight billion dollars. That New York's the only state that hasn't paid it off, and they're going to put it on the backs of business owners some point, you know, what breaks your back. So, I mean, we do our best, you know, we're very appreciative of tax credits that they're giving us. And these are cash tax credits. These are uh, refundable tax credits. So you don't have to make, you, you get, you get the money back. So I guess if that's how you want to go, that's positive, but it, it doesn't help with the bigger problem. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, 
Let's switch gears for a second. You brought up before that you're on your fifth generation of milking equipment, and now it's um, robots. I know it's robotic, but it's more fun to say robots. I had an opportunity to come visit your farm a few years ago. uh, The first time that minimum wage was an issue in in New York when they raised it um, back in 2016-ish. Can you talk a little bit? Um, I think I find it interesting. I hope our listeners do talk a little bit about the the robotic milking machines that you have and what that evolution's been like. It's uh, it's the greatest thing in my life. Uh, well, I'm happy. <laughs> I have white. I have a wife and four kids, and I joke with people. I have four kids and seven robots. Don't ask me to pick a favorite. Um, <laughs> it's it's been absolutely tremendous. We um, it's it saves on labor, but the bigger factor is, you know, it, I milk cows myself with milking machines for 30, uh, 25 years. And I full-time, you know, I have other things to do, but I spent, you know, give or take 36 hours a week myself milking cows. And I loved every minute of it. I enjoyed it, but that's a lot of time. And to try to find people, I mean, you can find people offshore, um, but that's a challenge too. And it's a lot more attractive to my kids. And my older kids remember me milking in a parlor, but my younger kids have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and it's just, we are able to do a really great job with our cows, but yet not have as much stress on the farm and the family. And it's a decision that we made. And actually, we're going to be, we're getting to 10 years old on our robots. So we're already talking about, um, you know, renewing them in the coming, in the coming years here because they've been such a game changer for us. And it's a technology that continues to come forward because as time goes on, the price of them hasn't increased a ton. So that means they're becoming, everything else is going up. They're becoming more and more affordable all the time for, for other farms. Well, and if you're if if you're someone who's who's listening to the show, you won't get to appreciate this. If you're watching, you noticed that um, we lost Eric's video because he's out working in his farm. But we are going to run some clips of when we got to go tour your farm and look at those robots in action, which was really cool. Yeah. So so we as a family, we we make a commercial product. Um, and we belong to this cooperative agrimark that owns Cabot Cheese. Everybody's familiar with Cabot Cheese. It's a tremendous product, and we're very, very proud of that product. But also, you know, we have neighbors whose milk is made into different artisanal cheeses, which are great products too. It all, I think, with the food safety standards we have, um, you know, I think any product you buy that has any kind of um, it's going to be a good product. The difference is, you know, you got some of these artisanal cheeses that are $20 a pound and Cabot is four or $450 a pound. Um, you know, my wife goes shopping and she has to buy cheese for four kids. It doesn't matter something's 20 versus Cabot, which is a tremendous product for four or $450. Um, you're going to buy the Cabot. Um, having said that, our thought leaders say they care about low-income consumers or even forget about low-income consumers. I mean, any moderate guy, any moderate income people, they want to do the best for their kids. 
nobody's buying the artisanal. And again, there's people who will buy artisanal cheeses, and it's a great. I, I support that. I think that's wonderful. I hope to do it myself. But for the family that's raising kids, you're going to buy the four dollar cabbage because you know you're getting a great product at a reasonable price. But every signal we're getting from the government is to serve the niche market and not worry about the commercial market. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's a really interesting sort of microcosm of all of these problems. When you think about how last legislative session ended up and where we see it picking back up again in January, are there policy changes that were under consideration that you expect to be under consideration again that worry you? I mean, are there are there a couple of things or a handful of things that you're going to be paying attention to going into next legislative session? Well, I'll give you two. And uh, one that I will be paying attention to and the other one I hope to be paying attention to. Um, the one I hope to be paying attention to is um, the ban of uh, neonicotinoids, which is a feed treatment. Uh, that we use and both houses of the legislature have passed it. We are hopeful we can get a veto from the governor. Uh, we're not sure where that is. So we continue to work with the governor's office. I know that the um, we have some friends in the executive offices who are urging that we urging a veto, but of course there's a lot of support for passing that. So I hope to be dealing with that next year. Um, the other issue that thankfully the legislature can't get their stuff together. So that's helpful is uh, uh, something called EPR, which is the extended producer. Um, it's basically about, it's basically about recycling. Extended producer responsibility. And basically we have a bottle bill in New York state now that, you know, we buy a can of, Pepsi, so, you know, we pay five cents when we buy the can. If we bring the can back, we get that. Well, the new strategy for a number of people in the legislature is, and this isn't just the bottles of soda, this is to everything, is they, and they say they're targeting Amazon and, quote, big companies, whatever, whatever that means, because be real careful of the, the fine print on big, that encompasses a lot of people. And basically what they're looking to do, but again, the assembly and the Senate cannot get together on this. This is helpful. Uh, they want packagers to go ahead and pay for all this ahead of time. You say, well, I'm a dairy farmer. I don't sell direct. No, I don't. But you know, my co-op packages all their cheese and that might not be the target, but the huge thing is, um, like we've got a small co-op in Kingston called Hudson Valley Fresh and they have old milk. So they want us to pay pay the um, pay the recycling fees ahead of time, and they can't tell us what that cost is just going to single serve plastic. You know that's the bane to lots of people. They want to clean up our environment, but okay, we still need to eat. Um, so that's going to be a real challenge, and I'm, I'm hoping to work with you know members of the legislature as we move forward on this. The governor had proposed. Um, um, exempting dairy for 10 years. Well, that, I guess it's good for me for today, but 10 years goes pretty fast. And I know that our wine folks um, view this as a mortal threat because glass bottles are very, very expensive. So I know 
several winery people who have really been working hard on this saying, you're going to, you know, all this talk of loving the wineries, and now you're going to have us pay for someone, you know, you're going to have business pay for society's recycling issues. It's, yeah, it sounds great, but I don't know how that, you know how it is. It's like everything else. Is they've got this big plan. The details are pretty damning. Yeah, well, I mean, that seems like everything we've talked about ends with it sounds nice and it's probably a good idea, but practically it's <laughs> really difficult, right? Uh, I, the way that I understand EPR is that if you're not paying either upfront or post fact for the recycling, then part of it is about taking that packaging back, which you want to talk about impracticality from a farmer's standpoint. I don't even, I don't even know how logistically you'd make right. that. So there is, you know, I, I think it's one thing, and we talked a little bit about the state's climate bill, the CLCPA. Um, it's not that you or me or anybody doesn't think these are good ideas, but there is sort of like, hey, let's take a beat and figure out what impact this is going to have that's undesirable while you're trying to do the desirable thing. And I know that you've been really good about advocating, of course, for your own farm and for your family, but also for the agriculture and, and farming industry as a whole. And I appreciate, we appreciate having you out there doing that. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to do this with us today. Um, I know that you're busy and I know that you've got a robot herd to keep track of. So we'll let you get back to that, Eric. I hope you have a great rest of your summer and we'll talk soon, okay? And we're back with another episode of Messages of Necessity. I'm James, and I've got three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following these past couple of weeks. The fiscal 2025 budget, which is due in January, is already shaping up to be difficult to navigate. The budget approved in May essentially used $2 billion worth of cash to cover some of the significant growth in state spending during the current fiscal year, and it pushed off the question of how to pay for it going forward. To make matters worse, officials based their spending plan on state tax receipts remaining unusually high. Now, those inflated assumptions about taxes were burst back in June when budget officials updated their revenue forecast, which showed that revenues would fall billions short of expenses in fiscal 2025. Higher than planned spending, partially related to the influx of migrants to New York City and Medicaid cost overruns, could push that budget gap higher still. Computer chip manufacturer Micron has revealed that by the 2040s, its Onondaga County factories are going to be sucking up enough electricity to power New Hampshire and Vermont combined. Or put another way, in a single year, Micron will use enough energy to power the city of Buffalo for more than six years. All of this power is supposed to come from renewable energy, but to date, and despite offering Micron $6.3 billion in taxpayer money to move to New York, the state has no plans for providing that much renewable power. That means that 90% of Micron's power demand remains yet to be determined. And finally, New Yorkers paid some of the highest health premiums in the country in 2022, with a key benchmark of affordability reaching its worst level yet. The average annual tab for employer-sponsored single coverage in New York was $8,936, which was the costliest of any state. The gap between New York and the national norm for single coverage grew to more than $1,300, its highest level in the 27-year history of the survey by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Those are the three big stories the Empire Center is following. Now I'll hand it over to Kyle and Bill.
Hello, and welcome to another segment of Messages of Necessity. My name is Kyle Davis. I'm the Director of Public Affairs at the Empire Center. Today, I'm excited to bring you an insightful discussion on a crucial topic that impacts, impacts the state's financial health and healthcare system. Joining me is Bill Hammond, our Senior Health Policy Fellow and a seasoned expert in healthcare policy. We'll be delving into the recent trends and challenges in New York State's Medicaid spending and what it means for both taxpayers and those relying on the Medicaid program. How are you doing today, Bill? Good, Kyle. So, Bill, why don't you briefly explain to us what you recently blogged about in terms of being aware of Medicaid spending swings? So, Medicaid is a health plan for the poor and disabled. It's uh, it's run by the government. It has something like 7 million members these days. And as a health plan, it has enormous expenses. It's one of the biggest expenses in our state budget. But those expenses, you wouldn't expect them to change much over time. People are going to the doctor, you know, different people are going to the doctor every day. Um, they're going to the hospital for different issues. So you would expect that expenditures under this program would be relatively steady from day to day, month to month, and quarter to quarter during the fiscal year. That's that's not what's going on in New York. Um, so uh, in this fiscal year, for example, the program is going to be spending an average of about $6.5 billion a quarter. Uh, I'm talking about a portion of the program known as DOH Medicaid. We can talk about that a little more later if we need to. But it's supposed to be spending about an average of $6.5 billion a quarter. But instead, it's spending over $9 billion in the first quarter, then it's going to spend like $7 billion in the next two quarters, and then in the last quarter, it's going to drop below $4 billion. So you have this huge spikes and valleys in the spending during the course of the year. And the mystery is why it that happened. Um, we've, we know that it didn't always happen that way. If you go back to, you know, say 2010 or 2012, the spending was more or less steady throughout the year. Uh, but then um, during Governor Cuomo's second term, Governor, former Governor Cuomo's second term, you started to see these fluctuations. And it was associated with this budget balancing strategy they had of delaying payments. So the program was running over budget. They didn't want to admit that. They didn't have a plan for fixing it. So when the fiscal year was almost over, they simply chose not to pay a certain number of bills uh, in that fiscal year. The fiscal year ends in March, so they just postponed paying things, a bunch of things until April, um, which got them through the crisis, right? The, the fiscal year was over, the, the program appeared to be balancing out, but it left this problem for the next fiscal year. and that. They, they they did this thing several years in a row. The amount that they were postponing got bigger and bigger until in 2019, they had to sort of admit, okay, we've got this. And it was at that point, it was almost $2 billion that they were, um, you know, kicking the can down the road on payments. Uh, and it triggered a fiscal crisis. Um, they had to reconvene the Medicaid redesign team. The Medicaid redesign team had to recommend a whole bunch of cost-cutting 
and all of that came together in March of 2020, just when the pandemic was hitting. So they had this fiscal crisis, which was really self-inflicted uh, at the same time that they had a public health crisis hitting from outside of, of New York State. Yeah, Bill, why don't you explain a little bit? So you, you touched on how the pandemic kind of derailed this. There, there was already kind of an issue happening in terms of the payments being delayed. But then COVID really, really impacted it. Are we now back on a regular trend or should we be towards more a more regular trend now? So when COVID hit, um, the, the state, the, the legislature approved a plan that Cuomo's redesign team came up with that was supposed to save um, $4 billion or something like that. That included continuing to delay payments kind of ad infinitum. But then the pandemic came and a lot of things happened all at once. Demand for healthcare dropped and then bounced back. Uh, the federal government gave us a bunch of extra aid and now they're gradually pulling that back. The federal government also um, suspended the normal rules for Medicaid so a whole bunch more people could apply and, and become members. And now those people are being gradually removed. So there's all kinds of turmoil in the Medicaid program. And so when, when spending fluctuated under those circumstances, that almost seemed logical. You would expect there to, with all of those different conflicting things going on, you would expect a little instability. But that was that instability ended a year or two ago. And now we're we should be getting back to normal. And what I noted in my blog post is that the the variations in spending from quarter to quarter have, if anything, have gotten bigger. Uh, in fact, the, the the difference between the first quarter amount and the, la the last quarter amount is $6 billion. That's the highest swing that we've seen in a fiscal year ever. So um, I... My concern is that this is a sign that they're once again getting back into this very uh, unsustainable habit of delaying payment. So, Bill, going forward, do you anticipate um, the next Medicaid numbers that come out to be significantly higher than people are expecting? Because they're banking on a pretty low number based on your blog post, correct? Well, so here's here. This is part of what makes this problematic. If you it, part of the reason for putting out regular reports on the state spending is to give everybody an idea of whether the state is on course to meet its budget targets or whether it's over or under, right? When the amounts, when the amount that you're expecting to spend every month changes so dramatically, and your your plan as a, a, the state's official plan is to spend a lot in the beginning of the year and then not spend very much at all at the end of the year, it makes it very hard for us to tell as outsiders, are they on target or not? Um, so, by the way, the, um, the first quarter financial plan came out and it, in, in years past, it was over 400 pages. This year's version was 11 pages long. Uh, it had very it was very skimpy on detail about Medicaid or anything else. Uh, so we're we're really waiting until the 
mid-year update to find out what's going on with Medicaid. And and I'm it could show some dramatic overage or under it, but I'm I'm expecting it's going to be a little bit hard to read the way because of the way they're presenting and the way they're running the program. So, Bill, clearly you don't like uh, how the state is currently managing uh, the Medicaid program. What what recommendations or what things would you do if you had the ability to make all these changes uh, at DOH? <laughs> well, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> I mean, I one the, the the thing I'd like to see done that's most relevant to what we're talking about here has to do with transparency um, of 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 being clear and honest about what the program costs and and building that into the state's budget and its financial plan in a sustainable way. I think what what where the former Cuomo administration got caught was they weren't really budgeting enough money to cover the costs of the program. And so in order to make that work, they had to postpone some payments at the end of the year. They, that's that ends up creating a crisis, which is what happened in 2019 and 2020. We could be on the brink of another crisis like that, where um, there's an accumulated deficit that has to be dealt with just at a moment when the economy starts to go soft. Um, so the, the we could use a lot more transparency about Medicaid spending. And uh, uh, it it's, it would kind of dovetail with something called gap-based accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, where in, where you declare an expense when you incur it, not when you pay it. The way it works now um, in New York State, we have cash-based accounting. And I'm, I'm being a little bit rough with this because I'm not an accountant. But under cash-based accounting, when you pay the expenses, when it shows up on your books. And that that leaves you vulnerable to manipulation, like delaying payments. That makes a lot of sense, Bill. Um, as we're as we're kind of digging into this here, um, what lessons do you think could be learned so that going forward we don't repeat these mistakes? Um, and is there is there anything kind of top of mind that you would like to to see happen? You did just dive into those to that a bit. I mean, I one thing that would be useful is if the legislature had a hearing where they just asked the Medicaid director, the health commissioner, whoever the logical person is to come in and explain why these numbers look the way they do. Why are they packing so much spending into the first quarter and leaving and then counting on a big dip in the fourth quarter? What What's the rationale for that? Why aren't they, you know, doling out Medicaid money in an even hand way throughout the year? Um, are they delaying payments? If so, how much are they delaying? Um, why are they delaying payments? Why, you know, just get this stuff all aired out so that we're we're not caught by surprise. So, Bill, before we go, I just want to ask one final question. So why do you think most New Yorkers should care about this issue? I know that it's going to have some big budget impacts, but what what is the main reason why your average everyday New Yorker should should care about this? Well, to start with, about one in three average everyday New Yorkers is a member of Medicaid. I don't know how many of them will be listening to this podcast, but I imagine some are. 
Um, so they they need the program to be well run and financially stable. Um, it's it's one of the most expensive things that the state does. It's it, it sort of competes with school aid as as being the number one budget item. It's something like twenty five billion dollars this year. It's rapidly increasing. So people who pay taxes and care about the financial health of the state should be concerned about it. And then the, the final group that should be concerned is the healthcare system itself, because this is a, a huge part of their revenue. Um, you know, in theory, something like a third of their patients are, that, that come in the door are on this, have this kind of health coverage and their financial stability depends on getting paid on time. Um, and and getting paid adequately and and not having um, unexpected disruptions. Well, Bill, I'd like to thank you for sitting down and discussing this very interesting topic with me. I'm sure that this will be just the beginning as more numbers roll in on uh, how much the Medicaid system is costing moving forward. Uh, but I'd like to thank you and I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in. Until next time. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.